morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters. And we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Just pleased to be able to bring you what we call the American view. That is the view of the founders of our country. You could say it's their creed, the American creed, the American philosophy of government, if you will. And it's simply this. There is a creator God. And he is the one that has given us our rights. They come from him and from him alone. And therefore, the only purpose of human civil government is to secure and protect those God-given rights. That's the creed expressed in the Declaration of Independence. And I would contend that anyone who is a true American, a real American, that's what they believe civil government is about. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as a senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my two scholars and gentlemen, my Great collaborators on this wonderful Friday morning, uh, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and, and Mike Jeremia, who we call our warrior in the courtroom. By the way, Mike has a great show just before ours at 7 a.m. Friday mornings. Mike G. in the morning, the law matters. But we're in the midst of a series looking at Supreme Court cases, and we're calling this the Dirty Dozen, maybe the worst Supreme Court cases of all time. And two weeks ago, we, we looked at the uh, uh, the case that uh, kind of established in many people's mind the whole idea of judicial precedent. That was Marbury v. Madison. Last week, of course, we looked at the most notorious and most infamous case of all, Dred Scott, uh, that basically said that slaves and black people in general did not have any citizenship rights and could not ever be, uh, you know, in court and had any of their rights protected, basically saying they weren't human beings. They had no rights uh, like other human beings. And and obviously that wrong opinion was overturned, the 13th Amendment, securing uh, that slaves were no longer allowed in our country, private slavery at least, uh, and then 14th and 15th securing uh, all the other uh, citizenship rights, the right to vote and so on, and the right to protection of the laws. But uh, we're going to take a, a, a direction that's a little bit different than that when we look at the two cases this morning of the Dirty Dozen, and that is United States v. Butler and Halvering v. Davis. Both, both has to do with the issue of social security. And uh, if you're a working person and have gotten a paycheck and you look at your paycheck stub, you see that like seven and a half percent of your income has been taken by Social Security. Of course, that's hidden because there's another seven and a half percent that your employer has paid. That is unless you are self-employed and then you've paid both halves, a uh, 15 plus percent of your income going into this thing called Social Security. And the important question is, is Social Security actually? actually constitutional. And that's what these two cases uh, address, that very question. So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on these two cases? Well, these are two cases which impacted the adoption of Social Security as so-called general welfare services provided by the federal government. The first was rendered by the court in a six to three majority opinion written by Owen Roberts in January 1936. The second was a 7-2 to two majority opinion written by Justice Cardoza on May 1937. The 16-month difference between the cases is significant. Wikipedia has this to say about the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill. The legislation was unveiled on February 5, 1937, and was the subject of Roosevelt's ninth fireside chat on March 9th, 1937. 
This was the notorious Supreme Court packing scheme that was being considered by a Roosevelt majority in Congress during that period. Roosevelt was unhappy about the court's finding some of his legislation unconstitutional during the New Deal. U.S. v. Butler was specifically one of those uh, opinions. Although Roosevelt's legislation failed to pass Congress, many commentators believe that Roosevelt succeeded in pressuring the Supreme Court in its subsequent opinions. We can think of U.S. versus Butler as the camel poking its nose under the tent. In Halvering versus Davis, the camel squats in the middle of the tent, and it is the humans who have to exit. Well, let's look at a summary of United States versus Butler, and Wikipedia has a good summary of this case. United States versus Butler is a U.S. Supreme Court case that held that the U.S. Congress has not only the power to lay taxes to the level necessary to carry out its other powers enumerated in Article I of the United States Constitution, but also a broad authority to tax and spend for the general welfare of the United States. The decision itself concerned whether the processing tax is instituted by the 1933 Agricultural Adjustment Act were constitutional. If this part is stripped away, United States versus Butler would be considered a good opinion by the Supreme Court. Congress has a broad authority to tax and spend for the general welfare of the United States. Wow. There are two references in the Constitution of the United States to general welfare. The first is in the preamble, which is not considered to have the force of law. The real mischief is done, however, on the initial statement in Article I, Section 8. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. General welfare is an undefinable term that is particularly dangerous with politicians. First, general welfare is too easily distorted into special interest. But even if that were not the case, its limits are difficult to define even if properly used. Madison expressed his concern about the potential abuse of the term in the Federalist Number 41, where he stated, the idea of an enumeration of particulars, which neither explain nor qualify the general meaning, and can have no other effect than to confound and mislead, is an absurdity, which is we are reduced to the dilemma of charging either on the authors of the objection or on the authors of the Constitution. We must take the liberty of supposing had not its origin with the latter. In other words, Madison looked upon the general welfare concept as a further restriction on the enumerated powers stated in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. Article I, Section 8 grants Congress the power to tax, borrow, and spend. That does not grant Congress the power to spend on alternative offices on yachts in the Potomac River. That would be considered special welfare and not general welfare. This contrasts with the Hamiltonian interpretation of general welfare as expressed in the latter's report on manufacturers in 1781. 
In The Federalist, Hamilton had acknowledged that the states had concurrent powers with the states. The two governmental entities had powers over different objects or areas of jurisdiction. But Hamilton reversed himself once the Constitution was ratified. He then promoted the idea of the federal government's implied power to address the nation's general welfare. In the report on manufacturers, Hamilton promoted the idea of the federal government having the power to spend on what he called bounties, or what we would today know as subsidies to industries he wished to be protected from foreign competition. Who would award these contracts? The Federalist majority Hamilton controlled in Congress at the time. Human nature being what it is, these contracts would have been awarded to Federalists who supported Hamilton's program. The system was bound to introduce corruption into the federal government. Let's take a look at the United States versus Butler opinion. Here are some of the court's opinions found in the syllabus of the United States versus Butler case at the Supreme Court's Justia website. Number two, a tax in the general understanding and in the strict constitutional sense is an exaction for the support of government. The term does not connote the expropriation of money from one group to be expended for another as a necessary means in a plan of regulation, such as the plan for regulating agricultural production set up in the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Number three, in testing the validity of the processing tax, it is impossible to wrest it from its setting and treat it apart as a mere excise for raising revenue. Number four, from the conclusion that the exaction is not a true tax, it does not necessarily follow that the statute is void and the exaction uncollectible if the regulation of which the exaction is a part is within any of the powers granted to Congress. Number five, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, ordained and established by the people, and all legislation must conform to the principles it lays down. Number six, it is a misconception to say that in declaring an act of Congress unconstitutional, the court assumes a power to overrule or control the action of the people's representatives. Seven, when an act of Congress is appropriately challenged in a court, it is the duty of the court to compare it with the article of the Constitution, which is invoked, and decide whether it conforms to that article. Eight, all that the court does or can do in such cases is to announce its considered judgment upon the question. It can neither approve nor condemn any legislative policy. It can merely ascertain and declare whether the legislation is in accordance with or in contravention of the provisions of the Constitution. Nine, the question in such cases is not what powers the federal government ought to have, but what powers have in fact been given it by the people. Ten, ours is a dual form of government. In every state, there are two governments, the state and the United States. Each state has all governmental powers save such as the people by the Constitution had, have conferred upon the United States, denied to the states, or reserved to themselves. 11. The government of the United States is a government of delegated 
uh, powers. It has only such powers as are expressly conferred upon it by the Constitution and such as are reasonably to be implied from these expressly uh, granted. Number 12, and this is the key. The Agricultural Adjustment Act does not purport to regulate transactions in interstate or foreign commerce, and the government in this case does not attempt to sustain it under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Points 1 to 11 might be considered an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. The mischief began on point 12, which was an invitation to abuse the intended powers of the interstate commerce phrase. That idea will return in subsequent bad court decisions. Let's look at a summary of Halring versus Davis. Again, the Wikipedia summary of this case is helpful. Halring versus Davis was a decision by the United States Supreme Court that held that Social Security was constitutionally permissible as an exercise of the federal power to spend for the general welfare and so did not contravene the Tenth Amendment of the United States Constitution. The court's 7-2 decision defended the constitutionality of the Old Age Benefit Program of the Social Security Act of 1935 by requiring only welfare spending to be for the common benefit as distinguished from some mere local purpose. It affirmed a district court degree that held that the tax upon employees was not properly at issue and that the tax upon employers was constitutional. Here's where the Hamiltonian interpretation of the Constitution to include federal implied powers and general welfare begins to dominate court thinking. So here's the connection between United States versus Butler and Halvering versus Davis. Levy and Miller's chapter on these cases in The Dirty Dozen describes the relationship between these two cases. Not until Roosevelt asked Congress for six new Supreme Court positions in an effort to pack the court with New Deal supporters did the justices adopt the Hamiltonian view of the General Welfare Clause and open the floodgates for the redistributive state. The case that laid the groundwork was United States versus Butler, which struck down the Agricultural Adjustment Act, a 1933 statute that taxed food processors and then used the proceeds to pay farmers. The AAA would no doubt qualify as a legitimate con congressional regulation of interstate commerce, but that view had not quite congealed when the New Deal Congress began spending federal money with strings attached. If farmers wanted to receive the benefits of federal largesse under the AAA, they had to curtail production. In effect, Congress attempted to use its taxing power for the ulterior purpose of imposing economic regulations that might not have been sanctioned under the Commerce Clause. Uh, Levy and Miller continue. Thus, Butler opened the door to the redistributive state. But it wasn't until the following year in Halvering that the court allowed Congress to expropriate money 
from one group and spend it on another. The AAA in Butler was essentially a regulatory scheme. The Social Security Act in Halvering was blatant redistribution. Halvering became the true test of the court's suggestion in Butler that the AAA would have been upheld if the tax dollars had been spent simply to relieve farmers, an objective not within the enumerated powers of Congress, without imposing conditions on the receipt of the money. This was the rationalization for the establishment of the full distributive state. The general welfare phrase helped to build the connection between United States versus Butler and Halvering versus Davis. We will encounter this in other cases, including Wickard versus uh, Filburn. The important takeaway from these two cases is that they completely destroy the concept of limited enumerated power that is the fundamental defense against the seizing of an individual's liberties. Let's look at Halvering versus Davis and the interstate commerce phrase. Halvering versus Davis does not appear to directly address the issue of interstate commerce, although the transcript of oral argument in Halvering versus Davis reveals an interchange between Justice Cardoza and an attorney arguing for the respondents in the case, Edward F. McLennan, that illustrates the danger in the camel poking his nose under the tent. Justice Cardoza raised the question, I suppose your position is that there remains then only the question of adequate remedy at law, which may, in certain circumstances, be waived or disregarded. The problem was that not everybody would be covered. Some people would be exempted from Social Security taxation and benefits. So where was the line to be drawn? McLennan attempted a response. The tax is the employing of labor in industry and trade and in all other ways in which there may be employment, except agriculture and domestic service. Agriculture and domestic service were to be excluded from the Social Security program. McLennan was more specific in subsequent comments. A country farmer employing a laborer does not pay the tax. He then stated, I do not refer to what may be the duty of the United States to take care of those within its category of government. The employees engaged in interstate commerce, the employees of the government itself, and those who are engaged in defending the United States or carrying on war. The key wording here is employees engaged in interstate commerce. Interstate commerce probably was in and of itself large enough to take care of all those matters where the states might come in conflict. At this point in time, the term interstate commerce had not, uh, had not been taken to the absurd extreme it was taken in the subsequent Supreme Court case, Wickard versus Filburn, but the camel's nose was already clearly under the tent. Tellingly, Justice Cardoza, who wrote the opinion favoring the adoption of Social Security, did not object to this reasoning. The stage was set for Wickard versus Filburn.
Thank you, Phil. And and if you know anything about camels, if you've ever been around a camel, they're pretty stinky animals. And by the way, they like to spit. They spit in your face. <laughs> not a not a nice creature to have in your tent. And like you said, it'll take up the entire tent and drive you out of the tent. Well, yes, and that was the opposite, really, of our, our founders' design here with our Constitution, uh, designed to limit and restrict our federal government to just those specific enumerated powers uh, that we, the people, have granted to them to do a certain limited series of things and nothing more than that. And so uh, it's, it's very clear that what we have in, in uh, both cases is a change that you rightly point out, Phil, took place because of the threat on the part of uh, uh, FDR to pack the Supreme Court. What was happening in that time is that, you know, as the Supreme Court uh, looked at all the New Deal bills that uh, FDR and his administration were rapidly pushing through all these New Deal changes. They were striking them down one after another after another. This is not constitutional. That's not constitutional. That, that doesn't meet constitutional muster and, and muster. And so, you know, FDR was getting rather hot under the collar and he decided he, he needed to threaten these Supreme Court justices to bring them in line. And, and even though, like you, you mentioned, his bill to do that, to pack the Supreme Court, did not pass, nonetheless, the kind of pressure somehow that uh, he was able to bring upon the Supreme Court was successful. And that's sad because our founders said very clearly they wanted the Supreme Court and the federal courts to be insulated from political pressure, that political pressure would not get to them, would not change how they ruled. They would rule according to the Constitution, not according to the whims of the time or whoever is uh, currently uh, the president. By the way, if you'd like to look at a, a good view of the uh, the whole New Deal thing, I, I recommend to you the book called New Deal or Raw Deal. New Deal or Raw Deal. It walks through all the things of, wow, you see some really wicked things being done by FDR, like buying votes and so forth. But anyway, he uh, he was not a good president, in my view, one of the worst of the worst presidents that, that we've had. But we appreciate that what Madison identified, and by the way, we need to remember that James Madison, often called the father of our Constitution, if anybody knew what the Constitution said, I mean, it should be him. Uh, he was very intimately involved in, in every aspect of it. And he told us that what we see with that phrase general welfare, what it means is it's a further restriction on the enumerated powers started, stated in Article 1, Section 8. So it's like, okay, these Article 1, Section 8 powers that we've given you, let's take an example, the post office, you know, they can establish post office and post roads, but they can't establish post offices and post roads that don't benefit the general welfare. That is, they couldn't just put post offices and post roads in Pennsylvania and not have any of them in Ohio. Because then you'd be favoring Pennsylvania against Ohio. You need to do general welfare that everyone benefits. Years ago, I traveled up into Canada at the, in the into the Bay of Fundy, fascinating place. And the the amazing thing there is the tide rises by eight feet, goes up eight feet up and eight feet down. And so very clearly there. All boats rise at the same rate when the tide goes up, and they all fall at the same rate when the tide goes down. That's a good picture of this idea of general welfare. Everybody has to benefit equally by the decisions made, and nobody can be favored, one group of people favored against another group of people favored. Well, well, this whole idea of Social Security, however, is exactly the opposite. You're favoring one group of people 
versus another group of people. That is, you're favoring people who've reached retirement age and begin to receive those Social Security benefits, or these days people who are disabled, or people who are illegal immigrants. A whole bunch of people get favored, but the people who are working are paying essentially 15% of their income because they only see seven and a half on their pay stub, but their employer's paying the other seven and a half unless they're self-employed and then they're paying the whole, the whole 15. So this is a violation because uh, what it does is it takes money from one group of people and it gives it to another group of people. And they rightly said in US v. Butler, that's unconstitutional. That term, uh, they said the term does not connote the expropriation of money from one group to be expended for another as a necessary means in a plan of regulation, such as a plan for regulating agricultural production and so on. So they got it right in Butler. But look what happened after the threat of FDR. They switched tunes. By the way, there's some excellent things in, in, in Butler. You're right, Phil, to point out the first 11 points are right on on tack. They are what our founders designed our constitution to be, that the uh, federal government only has such powers as are expressly conferred upon it by the constitution. And therefore, something like Social Security is not envisioned in the constitution at all. So in Helvering v. Davis, they basically ruled the opposite. They said, well, you know, we can tax one group of people to spend for another group of people because, you know, that other group of people, they're going to benefit the general welfare because, well, they're going to spend that money. And think of it this way. I, I would love if that if that's really the theory of our Constitution, I would love Congress, both houses of Congress, to agree together to do a David Whitney Benevolence Fund. Oh, let's make it $50 million. That's a nice round number. No, let's make it $52 million. That's, you know, a million a week. And if they give me, the from the taxpayers, they give David Whitney $52 million, I guarantee you, I will spend that money, you know? I will buy cars and boats and planes and houses, and no, I'll, I'll go on a spending spree, so I'm gonna actually benefit the economy, the housing economy that's kind of stumbling right now. That's gonna be benefited. The the auto production economy and the, the uh, luxury boat economy and the private airplane, all those things are gonna be benefited because I'm gonna spend that money. You obviously say, David, you're out of your mind. That's not general welfare. That's specific welfare to you and to you alone. That's not all boats rising with the tide as it comes into the Bay of Fundy. That's one boat being elevated artificially and all the other boats staying down. In fact, the other boats are going lower because you have to tax everybody else the $52 million you're going to give to me. So everybody else is going to be deprived while I'm making out like, well, uh, like a bandit. And by the way, if you want to read an excellent book on this whole subject of legalized plunder, when the government is used to steal from one group of people to give to another group of people, I cannot recommend higher, more highly than Frederick Bastiat's book, The Law. It's available online, so you don't even have to purchase a physical copy. It's a short read, but it'll give you an excellent understanding. And when government turns from what our founders designed, that is general welfare, everyone has to benefit, to an interpretation that allows specific welfare, what happens is legalized plunder. That is, you get a group of people to determine, okay, we gotta get people elected to office who are going to give us that money. 
You know, we're going to be the beneficiaries because we got them elected and we put into their campaign chest and they owe us. So we got them elected and now they're going to turn around and they're going to benefit us out of the public treasury. And we're going to plunder other citizens because we have that political connection. What's the result of that? Bastiat explains then everybody in the whole society, once they realize that's what's happening, Everybody gets into the game of legalized plunder. They want to send their representatives because their representatives are going to say is they're going to bring the bacon home to the district. You know, they're going to get money in my pocket. I'm going to benefit. And everybody begins to compete for legalized plunder and the system of what is a fair and just government completely breaks down. And that's really what Helvering V. Davis began to do as it it said that Social Security was, oh, sure, this is this is constitutional. Yeah, our founders, they would have agreed with this. No problem at all. Let's go ahead and do that. Now, Phil, you rightly pointed out, however, they said some people were not going to be subject to this Social Security. For example, one of the group of people they exempted from this is those who work for the railroad because the railroad already had a system of retirement. And so they said, okay, those people, they don't have to pay into Social Security. They're not going to get Social Security when they retire, but they got their railroad retirement pension. I know somebody that you know, retired from the railroad, and that's a very nice pension. And they never had to pay into Social Security at all because they were part of the railroad. And then, like you mentioned, there's others who are being granted that. So it, it, it makes me think. We had the 13th Amendment that supposedly abolished involuntary servitude. But doesn't the Social Security Act create involuntary servitude? That you have to be part of this? That you don't have an option when you go to work, you sign a W-4, and that W-4 allows your employee employer to take the money out of your paycheck, but you wouldn't get the job if you didn't sign the W-4? And I know that because I have tried to do that in the, in the past. Say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't like this Social Security scheme. As a matter of fact, when I look at the Social Security scheme, I see it as a Ponzi scheme. You know what a Ponzi scheme is? There's a it's like a pyramid, and the people that get in at the beginning of the pyramid they make out really well. They're at the top of this pyramid, and and this is actually true with Social Security. The first person paid out uh, for the rest of their life had only paid in a couple of quarters. In other words, they wouldn't. It wasn't even a full year that they paid in, and yet this woman went on, I think, to live to be 85 years old, and so she collected Social Security. I mean, she made out like a bandit because she only paid in a little bit. Wow, she got a whopping sum in return for the remainder of her life. And this is a this is a system that, as a Ponzi scheme, if you know the history of Ponzi schemes, it always winds up the people who get in last. They're the chumps. They're the the ones who really get gouged because they get nothing, where the people who got in first uh, make a, a, a make a bundle. And actually, we see this Ponzi scheme coming to fruition in our day. The trustees of the Social Security Fund uh, just recently, I think it was two years ago, admitted in public, they admitted that the Social Security, for the first time in the history of the Social Security Administration, it paid out more money than it brought in. That is, all the people's paychecks all over the country, all the money coming in from everybody's paycheck to Social Security was not adequate to meet the payouts that were being made to the retirees, uh, to those who got to, you know, uh, injured and so forth, all the different uh, disability payments. So all that they were paying out is greater than what's coming in, which means Social Security is absolutely bankrupt. 
It doesn't have the money to pay. And the, we know the Social Security lockbox that we were famously told, oh, we got this lockbox in Washington, D.C. We've taken your Social Security money and we've locked it up and it's safe. You can trust us. We're politicians. Read my lips. That kind of thing. <laughs> what, what happened? That lockbox was busted into years ago. And it's only filled down with worthless IOUs. In other words, Congress has spent all that money. It would be trillions upon trillions of dollars if they not raided the lockbox and spent all that money. But they did because they're typical politicians and they're involved in legalized plunder. And they were plundering the Social Security lockbox that never really was respected. And the result is that, uh, you know, Mike, I'm sorry to tell you, probably by the time you get to retirement, there's going to be nothing left in that Social Security administration. Or if there is, they're going to have to start taxing people at 50% of their income in order to pay the people who are retired. It's a broken system. And I don't think there's any way out because when you reach the end of the Ponzi scheme, some people get mad, some people get bloody noses. But people who get got in at the end of the Ponzi scheme, they get their, you know, their wallet basically cleaned out. So this uh, decision by the Supreme Court, very, very bad. One of the, the worst decisions because it began a destruction of the, the right of the people to keep the fruit of their labor. And uh, when they were misinterpreting the Constitution just you know, a year after the Butler case, uh, misinterpreting the Constitution because of political pressure, they were failing to do their job. And would to God at that point that we had a House of Representatives that understood their job was to impeach such Supreme Court justices that voted for that opinion and basically were violating the terms of their office. They're not in, judges are not in for life. They're in terms of good behavior constitutionally and to misinterpret and misapply the constitution as they did here in Helvering v. Davis was a breach of their oath of office and they should all have been impeached. And I think the people in America should have tarred and feathered them and ridden them on a rail at of Washington, D.C. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on, on these two cases? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. Can we uh, increase that endowment fund just by a million bucks, maybe? Could you spare <laughs> a million? I promise I'll spend it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, I'll make a provision. And if they make it $53 million, I'll give you one, one of those 50, uh, 53. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds good to me. I think it's a great idea. So when we're looking at these cases, uh, you know, in terms of the time between them, there's not much time. So it got me curious as to how they could have reached dramatically different decisions. And so what I looked into was who on the Supreme Court voted which way on each case. So in terms of United States versus Butler, on the side that uh, was in the majority, you first have uh, Charles E. Hughes, and then you have Willis Devanter, you have James Clark McReynolds, you have Sutherland, uh, George Sutherland, you have Butler, uh, Pierce Butler, you have uh, Roberts, who is Owen Josephus Roberts, and then on the dissenting side, you had Brandeis, you had uh, Justice Stone, and Justice Cordoza. And if you read the dissent in the Butler case, you can sort of see the writing on the wall if this idea ever came to fruition. Because this is a lot of what they spoke about in the dissent comes to be ultimately in Helvering versus Davis. The whole idea that it's really not our job to determine what the general welfare is, that's something that should be left to Congress. 
And so when we get ultimately to Halvering versus Davis, uh, you see this turn. I suppose that if you wanted to come up with a rationale and try to make it make sense and reconcile the two, because so many justices had changed on each of these two cases, uh, aside from the, the court packing threat that was in the background, which is terrifying, uh, might I add. You know, if, if you think about what that would lead to, because there was talk about that fairly recently uh, with the makeup of our current Supreme Court. Uh, if it went that way, it would basically become an annual, uh, not necessarily an annual thing, but every time power changes hands, there's a few more Supreme Court justices, and it just becomes a wash eventually. You'll have 230 Supreme Court justices <laughs> making decisions on these cases uh, just to try to get into alignment with the uh, political party who is in power. And I don't think that's the whole point of this. It would basically eliminate the judiciary and a lot of these things, even though justices are supposed to be neutral and fair and, you know, apply the facts to the black letter law. Uh, but I think you would be a fool to say that politics plays no role in the judiciary. It just would be not uh, paying attention to reality. But anyhow, when, when you see the way the, this change took place, if you wanted to come up with some kind of uh, a reasonable rationale to reconcile the two. Uh, they were very particular in Butler that agriculture in and of itself was something that was traditionally beyond uh, the scope of the federal government, and this was to be left to the states. And I suppose if you wanted to sort of uh, twist your reasoning, you can say that this one is distinguishable with Halvering versus Davis. There was a companion case I don't know if we'd call it a companion case, but a case decided the same day as Halvering versus Davis. And this had to do with uh, a different company. You get the, you have the similar issue. They were ultimately uh, reached a decision in the Steward Machine Company versus Davis. And this had to do whether the federal tax statute was constitutional on its face. Uh, ultimately, we know the way that went. Uh, but it was an important case. They reference it in Halvering versus Davis uh, because they were dealing with a, a similar issue uh, and they sort of ran together in that sense. So when you're looking at uh, what happened in the grand scheme of things, Pastor Whitney, I, I don't think that I could agree with you anymore when you talk about uh, what is general welfare when it's impacting other people negatively and they're just trying to twist things and to, to make it there. How is this not something uh, that's more particularized and impacting people differently than it impacts others? Uh, there's the whole idea behind it when they were pushing this legislation through that there were people in need and they had to get that money and they took it from somebody else is what they ended up doing. I don't see how you get... Uh, more along the, the lines of socialist rationale than doing something like that. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the opinion that we ended up with here. And when you look at the opinion in Halvering versus Davis, much like the dissent in the Butler case, they talk about how they're not going to second guess the legislature and they're going to leave the power in the hands of the legislature. And when you look at the entire system in and of itself, Although the Supreme Court dropped the ball on this one, it sort of does reaffirm uh, the necessity of the Supreme Court. And hear me out on this. I know that sounds ridiculous. Uh, 
But Pastor Whitney, you talked about the Congress impeaching the Supreme Court justices. Well, those would be the same Supreme Court justices <laughs> who just supported the legislation that they themselves enacted. So I don't see how uh, you're going to have a legislature who's enacting these unconstitutional laws, holding the judiciary accountable for upholding these unconstitutional laws. And so my conclusion is it shows that there is a need for uh, that check there uh, when you have the legislature doing things that are unconstitutional. They certainly dropped the ball here, and we see where it's ended up as a result of all this, the absolute disaster uh, that we've got on our hands. But if you didn't even have that, then where would it go? It would be in the hands of the legislature, and they can do pretty much whatever they want so long as they think it's a good idea. And, and they don't have any restraints on their authority. Uh, but for the Constitution, when you have the Constitution and it's got no teeth and it's not being enforced, uh, then you've got a serious problem. So uh, that last line of defense, so to speak, in the Supreme Court and ultimately uh, determining the constitutionality is important. They certainly dropped the ball here. Uh, but I think the best that I can say is it's certainly got problems, but maybe it's better than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Hey, by the way, uh, you know, Phil and I are, are, are a few years older than you. So, you know, you, you may have a different perspective on this. Do you talk to anybody in your you know age range that, that is concerned that, you know, Social Security, when you get to retirement, it's not going to be there. Is nothing going to happen. That's that's a, an empty promise that you have to pay into, despite the fact that you'll get nothing on the other end. Is that, is that a talk among any of your friends and colleagues? Uh, I, I'm ashamed to admit this, Pastor Whitney, but I'm sort of in that age range where uh, that seems, you know, our lifetime away before you have to deal with that. So it doesn't really, it's not something we really sit around talking about. But I will tell you this. Personally, I presume that it won't be there. I live my life today in preparation for my future as if it will not be there. So that's just a 15 percent tax that uh, you have to pay that you'll never see anything from. Right. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could be assured that I'm not going to get a penny of that. And no, no, I'm not. Years, I'm not years ago, no, I'm years not ago, afraid. I chose as a pastor to opt out. They they offer you, it's like you have six months from when you're uh, ordained or licensed as a pastor. You got six months to notify the Social Security agency that you have a conscientious objection to Social Security and you want out of the system. And I did that, and so praise God, I have been out of that system, and therefore I'm on my own, not dependent on it and not taking any money from anybody else. It's uh, So I'm grateful to be out of that system. That's amazing. It kind of proves your point, though, right? If certain people can opt out and, and do things of that nature and others can't, uh, that uh, goes against the principle of general welfare, as you mentioned, yes. right? <laughs> and, and, and I thought that, well, well uh, maybe, you know, an employer can offer people an out, and I have a friend who's an employer, or not currently, but has been in the past an employer. And at one point, when he understood these constitutional principles and that Social Security was completely unconstitutional, he decided to offer his employees uh, some kind of an arrangement whereby they could opt out of Social Security. And not one of them would take it up. 
They didn't want it. No, no, we want that system. We want the government to be. We want the government welfare safety net that's going to protect us in old age. And this was FDR's promise. If you've ever seen his address, that's known as the Second Bill of Rights. He said, "We have the right to be free from the fear of old age." <laughs> what? What insanity is that? That's FDR. Just. Uh, a rank socialist. But Phil, you may have a different perspective on it because, you know, you're ahead of me a few years. And uh, what do you hear from your your friends and, and, and folks? Well, uh, first of all, it's nice to be uh, at the, the head of the Ponzi scheme. <laughs> 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 but I recognize it's unfair. I mean, I, in principle, I oppose uh, Social Security. Uh I think our generation is fixated on Social Security. I mean, you can't can't even mention uh, the possibility of modifying it in Congress uh, without, you know, the, the politicians going berserk, the media going berserk and all the rest of that, which is, uh, of course, wrong. It's it's like any other subject it should be discussed openly. So I think in our, our generation, uh, there's an unhealthy fixation on this. We have made assumptions that this is the right thing to do. We've never gone back to the basic principles, and that's what's necessary in this case. I know that many of the politicians call Social Security the third rail. I guess that that's the image of an electric train track, that the power is in the third rail in the middle, and if you touch the third rail and one of the outsides, you get electrocuted, you get fried, and you turn into a you know a corpse. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So the third rail of politics is to say, yeah, let's change Social Security. Yeah, that'll get me elected. <laughs> yeah. Not. <laughs> you know, they have cartoons of you pushing old people off of a cliff, basically. I remember that in one campaign. I can't remember who it was, but somebody mentioned changing, modifying Social Security. And they had cartoons of him pushing old people off of a cliff. Um, Phil, I've got a, first of all, Pastor Whitney, I just wanted to make clear when I said you're welcome, it wasn't directed towards you. It was directed towards <laughs> whatever uh, government bureaucrat gets the money in his pocket. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Phil, as somebody who's uh, well-versed in economics and everything, would people be better off taking that percentage of their money and investing it elsewhere over the course of their lifetime than the return that they get through Social Security? Well, I think uh, the answer is clearly uh, yes. But uh, one way to, to look at that is to just ask the question, uh, if you were to, to do something, to produce something, um, how would you do it most cost effectively? And, you, and you, can, you can go down a list of things, uh, you know, an individual trying to do it by himself, an individual working within the free market and so forth and so on, uh, a nonprofit organization or through a government bureaucracy. And basically, I don't care whether you're on the left or the right, everybody's going to say the worst possible way of getting something done cost effectively is to give it to a bureaucracy. So there's, mm -hmm. I don't think from the standpoint of economics, there's any question whatsoever. Yeah, if you were able basically, to keep that 15% that and invest it whatever way you chose, you'd make out better than the Social Security oh, Administration. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then there comes in the whole nanny state idea, because what they'll tell you is that, oh, but you won't have the discipline to do that on your own. We're doing you a favor by doing this, uh, because if you had it, you'd just spend it unwisely elsewhere. And we know how you what you need this money for. So we'll take care of it because we know what is best for you. And it's sort of like that old joke where somebody said that they've been smoking for many years 
and somebody tells them, you, you know, if you took all the money that you spent smoking all these years, you'd have enough money to buy a Lamborghini right now. And the smoker says, well, do you smoke? And the other person says, no. And he says, well, then where's your Lamborghini? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, another aspect of this that often doesn't get considered is the change, the social change this brought about in our country. And the change that I believe actually helps people violate the fifth commandment. Remember the Ten Commandments? The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. Before Social Security, how did people, when they grow old and unable to work any longer, how were they cared for? Their Social Security was their children. That's right, their children. If the children were raised up to obey the Ten Commandments and raised up to understand that honoring your father and mother doesn't just mean obeying them when you're a child in the home. It means that when you're an adult and they reach retirement age and you know their savings run out at some point or what have you, that it is your obligation as a child to take care of your aged parents and to love them and to honor them. That's part of what the beauty of what God created. The family government is the primary force that God designed in society to take care of those social needs, including the, the people who are aged. And, uh, you know, that may be a, a large burden, but it worked before. I mean, it worked before Social Security was invented. Old people didn't die just because they retired from their work. They were cared for by their family. Often the family home would be uh, have multiple generations living in it. So you got grandparents and grandkids in the same house. What's wrong with that? You know, no problem there. So God's design for family government to be the most important government in the structure of society that God created was attacked by Social Security. Because now children can say, well, hey, my parents are taken care of by the government. I don't need to worry about them. They got Social Security. They got Medicare. They got Medicaid. They, you know, they're fine. I don't have to take any responsibility for them uh, as they age. And, and you know, they're, they're on their own. I'm free from any obligation. By the way, Jesus has some very sharp words for the scribes and Pharisees who practiced the form of this in their day, where children basically said, I'm not financially responsible for my parents any longer. And Jesus really reamed the Pharisees and scribes for uh, the practice of Corbin in, in their day of basically dismissing any financial obligations a child had to take care of their parents in their in their aged years. And Jesus said, that's a violation of God's law. That's a violation of the fifth commandment. And so I see Social Security as part of that Corbin type of thing that Jesus has this to say about it. It's wicked. It's, it's wrong because it's children saying, I'm not responsible for my parents. The government's going to take care of my parents. Let me come back to the, the idea that the individual does not have the discipline. And by the way, that is a legitimate question to be to be raised, particularly today, because we see a lot of irresponsibility uh, that has le led to the malaise that we're dealing with. But it's a contradiction to the idea of representative government and the idea that uh, we live with a government of, by, and for the people. And so if you accept that assumption, basically what you say is that the people must be sub subject to somebody, somebody wiser and so forth and so on. Well, if, if you look at history, who have they been subject to? They've been subject to monarchs. They've been subject to dictators. Most of the monarchs have not been very wise. You know, so basically, what you're, you're faced with as an alternative 
is dictatorship today. Is that really the way you want to live? Do you want to live under a Stalin, a Lenin, uh, a Hitler, uh, a Chavez in, in Venezuela? I don't think most people really want to. So the real alternative here is education. It's constant education. It's got to start almost from the cradle in the home. It cannot be contradicted in the, the uh, school systems, but it's education if we're to be a virtuous people. And I think it was either Madison or Jefferson who said, you know, if, if the people aren't virtuous, the whole system will, will uh, lead to corruption. There's nothing remarkable about representative government if it gets corrupted. It's as bad as anything else. Mm. And good point today when we talk about people being self-disciplined and saving money and all that kind of thing. Well, everything that Congress is doing shows that they don't have any self-control. I mean, we're 31 trillion, that's with a T, 31 trillion dollars in debt and the promises being made, Medicare, Medicaid, if you add all those up, it's over 150 trillion dollars. Some say that's a that's a debt that's so large it can almost never be repaid. You'll be paying interest on it for eternity, so to speak, that makes Americans all debt slaves as a result of that. So. When it comes to control, like I said, they stole the entire trust fund. The trust fund is empty. Social Security has nothing in the trust fund. They're dependent on hand to mouth. So what comes in out of the paychecks is what goes out. But now they're having to steal from the general fund to make up the difference between what comes in and, and what goes out. So self-control, wow. If you're trusting the government for self-control, that's a fool's errand because they demonstrate they have no self-control. I'd like to go back to the idea of general welfare it, itself. And uh, my feeling, and I've looked at this for, I think, a relatively long period of time, I'm convinced that any reference in uh, any of our documents, our founding documents, to general welfare is a mistake, uh, particularly in the, the Constitution. Now, there are two references, as we all know, one in the preamble, which doesn't have the force of law, and the, the one that really counts is in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. That has to be eliminated. You, can, you can't have a, a, a term that, that is that potentially dangerous and undefinable in a constitutional document. So that's, that's number one. But I think also we should look at the preamble. I am not fond of the preamble of the Constitution of the United States. Number one, because of the the, uh, uh, the reference to the general welfare, which leads us to into a morass. But my feeling is we'd be much better replacing that with the words in the uh, the Declaration of Independence, which are we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to assure, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And then a reference to the purpose of this constitution is to implement that philosophical principle. Mm -hmm. Good, good point. And you have to give some credit to their attempt. They attempted to restrict that. I mean, not only did Madison say that, you know, that uh, this phrase is a restrictive phrase, that it's only uh, general welfare for all of the above uh, powers, like we talked about the post office. Well, uh, Thomas Jefferson also made a similar statement. He said this, Congress has not unlimited powers. 
to provide for the general welfare. Let me repeat that. Congress has not unlimited powers to provide for the general welfare, but is restrained to those specifically enumerated. Basically saying the same thing in different words that, that Madison said. So yes, they can create post offices, but they got to create post offices throughout the country equally, not favoring one geographic area over another. And likewise, they cannot favor one age group over another age group, which is what Social Security does, uh, nor can they favor one uh, um, uh, cohort of people based on the color or the melanin content of their skin over another group. All those things, that's not what they were talking about. But you're right. They probably would have been better not to use that term general welfare at all. I don't, I don't know that I ever told you who made the switch on those two cases. I was sitting oh, yeah. here thinking about it. So ultimately, uh, you have Cordoza, who authored the second opinion, who was in the dissent the first time around. You have Stone and Brandeis. Uh, he was in the dissent. Stone authored the dissent. He was in the majority um, during Helvering versus Davis. Brandeis who dissented on the first case was in the majority. But then you had the, the folks who switched, and that was Hughes who switched over the other side. Van de Vanter switched over the other side. Um, Brandeis was already in the dissent. George Sutherland switched to the other side. Um, Owen Josephus Roberts and someone who, who authored the dissent. So they add those. Only McReynolds and Butler, who were in the original majority, I say original meaning in uh, the Butler case, ended up dissenting on Helvering versus Davis. But interestingly, they did not author a dissenting opinion. And is that uh, is that odd? Usually a dissenting opinion is, is issued? On a case like this, I'd say so. Um, it kind of makes you think that maybe there's more to the story behind the scenes like you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't know. That's kind of the hidden history, right? <laughs> we, we can't bring ourselves to, to switch sides, but we're not going to talk too much about it. You know, the and fact who, that who knows they what were, the threats were. Go ahead. Uh, the fact that they were willing, that some of them were willing to switch sides, I think is is encouraging by comparison with recent Supreme Courts where they're almost predictable in mm. terms of, you know, what is the political uh, uh, agenda of one party and uh, has that justice been associated with the that political party? Well, you can pretty much pre predict how they're going to come out. They'll come out with rationalizations, but they won't come out with what you and I would consider constitutional logic. Well, we've had some surprises over the years. I think the Obamacare decision was a surprise for a lot of people. They didn't see it going that way. And I think that created some hesitancy, even with the addition of three Supreme Court justices who were considered to be on the conservative side when it came to the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case and uh, in terms of the, the decision that overturned Roe, I don't think many people were expecting those. I don't know. Perhaps I'm in the minority here. Mm -hmm. But if some of those people kind of switched uh, from what you would have expected them to uh, to uh, come down on in, in terms of the, the opinion? See, that, that would be a different story if they all ruled one way and then let's say two years later, two years from now, we get the same justices who voted uh, in the majority for those two cases ruled in a different case uh, going another way. That would be strange. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we have here between these two cases, right? Yeah, I mean, you can make it. Every case is different, and that's what you got to keep in mind. So you can always 
say that, well, they're, they're distinguishable and that's how you could reconcile them. And really the main one here is that you're dealing with agriculture uh, versus the social security scheme. And uh, you can say that one's different than the other, but it, it's still, it's a dramatic enough switch that it's very surprising. Uh, imagine if you gave young people today uh, under the age of 30 the option to get out of Social Security altogether. And was I forget which president it was that was talking about this, but uh, that was shot down pretty quickly. They would all opt out. They would say, no, 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 I, I see that that Ponzi scheme is not in my favor. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways at WFYL, inviting you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. as we continue to look at the Dirty Dozen.